a story about Yitzhak Perlman, the great violinist, um, still alive, Jewish violinist, um, and I guess um, many of you unwittingly, if not wittingly, listened to his music. Perlman, however, as some of you might know, um, had polio when he was um, a young child. And it means that, um, still today, um, as an old man, he um, uses a caliper, a set of crutches, and he's got a caliper on one leg. And the story is told of um, a date uh, which took place in the 1990s when he was performing at the Carnegie Hall in New York. And uh, the orchestra had assembled, and he, of course, was first violinist. And so after the orchestra had assembled, not only first violinist, but um, celebrity violinist, um, the audience rose, um, the orchestra rose, and Perlman made his way out onto the stage. He always insisted on making his own way out um, on his crutches with his caliper. And he sat himself down on the chair, as he always did, and the rest of the orchestra uh, sat, uh, sat down. He placed the crutches, as he always did, on the floor, and then, slowly, he undid the caliper from his leg so he could stretch out and play. He began to play. Fantastic uh, piece of music. But just a few bars in, a string broke on uh, his violin. And they say, I'm sure you can read about all of this on the internet, they say that you could hear, hear the ping of uh, the string breaking around that huge and famous concert hall. And then followed a silence. What would happen? The string was broken. Would Perlman have to put back on his caliper, get back on his crutches, go off stage, um, put a new string on his violin, tune up, come back in, which would have been a 20 minute delay? Everybody sat waiting what would happen. And the story is that after a few moments, he signaled to the conductor to begin again. And playing now on just three strings, he rethought the whole piece and performed it brilliantly with just three strings instead of four. At the end, the crowd music lovers went wild. They'd never seen anything like this happen anywhere. It was a standing innovation for Perlman. Then he came to the podium and he spoke and he simply said this, all my life I've been playing with what remains. All my life I've been playing with what remains. We're going to look at two stories in parallel uh, this evening. This is our last Sunday looking at the story of Joseph, which Daniel read so well to us just uh, a bit earlier. And uh, we're going to look in parallel um, at the story of Palm Sunday, the story we remember today. Jesus riding on a donkey into the city of Jerusalem at the beginning of the week which would end with him hanging on a cross, executed by the Roman state with the compliance of the Jews. But it's the beginning of the week, 
first of all, though, the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph, as you know by now, is simply this. Here is a hugely talented person that life runs against. Everything goes against him. As a young uh, teenager, perhaps 17 years of age, a little bit arrogant, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. We dealt with that three weeks ago. They tell his father that he's dead and he's been eaten by some ferocious animal, but they've actually trafficked him into Egypt as a slave. He's abandoned and he's alone. He's betrayed, he knows no one. His family leave him. He doesn't know whether his father knows that he's alive or dead. But entering um, uh, Egypt, he's sold again by those who trafficked him to a guy called Potiphar, and we looked at that story. And then he's accused of trying to commit adultery, and he's thrown into prison, and he spends years in that prison cell. And then last week, we uh, learned the story of how, because he developed this skill of understanding dreams, when Pharaoh, the super leader of the superpower of the day, had a dream, um, eventually um, Joseph was called to interpret it. And his interpretation was, there's going to be seven years of plentiful harvest across uh, Egypt, and then there'd be seven years of famine. So store up the grain, build barns, and prepare now for what's to come. And this story picks up from after that all happening because uh, the Pharaoh took um, Joseph's advice and the barns were built and Joseph rose to be prime minister. And if, you, if we read all of the chapters surrounding this story, we find that this famine was not just across Egypt, but across all the surrounding countries, which meant that Jacob, um, Joseph's dad, and brothers who betrayed him half-brothers really, and his real brother, Benjamin, who was a bit younger than him, were all left starving. And eventually they come to Egypt for help. And they meet Joseph, but they don't recognise him. Of course they're not going to recognise him. It was years and years ago that they abandoned him, and they come to meet the high official of Egypt, who could believe that their brother is actually going to be Prime Minister. He gives them food, enough to carry home. You can read this this fantastic story in the chapters that precede the one that we've heard from. And then they run out of food again, and he's already inquired of them whether they had a younger brother who wasn't with them, Benjamin, his own brother. And they told him of this young man's existence, and he said, you can come back for more grain, but you must bring your younger brother. And so that's the story we read. They come back looking for more food. And he treats them well and he throws a banquet for them. And in the midst of the banquet, he tells them who he really is. The brother they sold into slavery and betrayed and abandoned. And he showers generosity on them. And there is Benjamin, his younger brother. And as Dan read, he throws his arms around Benjamin and he weeps with tears of joy, and Benjamin weeps too. So here's Joseph, he's playing with what remains. He doesn't, life hasn't run smoothly for him, things have gone wrong. He's playing with what remains, what Poland said. But what he does is this, 
somehow the isolation and the struggle and the pain and the suffering of his life has created in him a spirit of grace and generosity. That's how he is. The problem is that that doesn't always happen. So back to our parallel story, the story of um, the story of Palm Sunday. Here are the crowds who too have been repressed. They're struggling. They're in prisons. They have a famine as well. Joseph um, and, and Egypt know famine. And Joseph knows a famine of love. He's alone. But these people who live in Jerusalem, they have a famine too. All power's been taken away from them. They're kicked around. They have no authority in their own country. They're under the boot of the Romans. The struggle is overwhelming. Their poverty is immense. There's no help for them. This is their famine. Jesus rides into town on a donkey. And they recognise him as the Messiah. The Messiah, the one who will help them. And so, as you know, they start crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he, the son of David. Now, Hosanna, as some of you might know, was an old term that gets used in the Old Testament. So if you read through the Psalms, you will know the word Hosanna from there. And the word Hosanna means save us, save us, save us. It's in some of David's Psalms when he cries out to God to save him. Hosanna means save us. The people cry, save us, to Jesus. They're desperate for a Messiah who will overthrow the Romans and who will set them free. But these same people who cry, Hosanna, save us, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're fickle. Because five days later, they're the same crowd that's going to be crying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And they're the same crowd that's going to choose Barabbas, a murderer, over Jesus. And they're going to send Jesus to his death. So what's the difference between Joseph and the crowd in Jerusalem, the people of Jerusalem? Joseph had learned deep lessons from his struggle and his suffering. He'd learned generosity. He'd learned grace. The crowd in Jerusalem had learned the opposite. And they'd been consumed by bitterness. Joseph used what he had left well. The people of Jerusalem were consumed by bitterness, which ate them up, their anger. The struggle that Joseph went through all his life had somehow produced this rich, fertile harvest of outstretched arms and generosity and inclusion. But the struggle the people of uh, the city went through had left them in a really uh, different place altogether. Um, so, how to be uh, at the need to get your own back? That's what we're uh, talking about. Um, Jesus um, encountered some religious leaders. These, I'm going to show you some words from Matthew's Gospel. These words of G uh, Jesus are related to the story we've just been telling of Palm Sunday about Palm Sunday because Jesus came with a message of peace he came with a message that said go the extra mile 
turn the other cheek, lay down your life, love your neighbour the way you love yourself. Right at the core of what Jesus was doing is he was, he was daring to say, you'll be set free when you let go of that grudge, when you drop that grudge, which will be hard to do. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not about, oh, I feel much better now, so I'll drop that grudge. It's that I have the grudge. I've been done wrong to, but I choose by a deliberate and conscious decision, act of my will, to treat that person as though they've not wronged me. That's what Joseph does, isn't it? He knows he's been betrayed. He's spent his whole life away from his home and his father because of the actions of his brother. So this isn't some gooey feeling towards them. It's a deliberate, conscious decision to treat them well. I find in uh, all of the work I do, the work I've been doing uh, this week, work I've been writing about this afternoon, actually, that it's easy for people to sign up to great ethics and virtues and be committed to them as long as they're just a, a, a slogan on a wall. It's very hard to put these things into practice in real time in our lives, in the way we treat others, write to others, speak of others when they're not there. But that's what Joseph learns. That's what the crowd doesn't learn. How to beat the need to get your own back. The crowd are baying to get the Romans, and when Jesus won't play their game, they dump him too. Joseph somehow has learned to do things differently. Jesus says of the religious leaders of his day, and of course the religious leaders of his day, of his day but also the community leaders of his day, you know, we do this great divide, don't we? We have church leaders and politicians. And the politicians run the community and the church leaders do the spiritual stuff or whatever. In Jesus' day, the whole thing was joined and integrated. So the religious leaders were the community leaders, etc., etc. It was an integrated system completely different from the, what I would regard as the dysfunctionality that we've come to, where the external stuff is done by one crew and the internal stuff is done by another crew. And I think actually you don't get a good result out of either uh, uh, because of that. But Jesus um, is talking to his disciples here in Matthew's Gospel. And he's talking about the religious leaders, and this is what he says. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Uh, you will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. The religious leaders of Jesus' day read the Torah read the Old Testament and all it taught them was that there were rules that everybody else had, uh, had to live by and if they didn't, it was their job to judge them, to put them down, to condemn them, to crush them. Jesus is saying, you've read the whole thing. Though seeing, you don't see. Though hearing, you don't hear or understand. Because there's a deeper truth. And the deeper truth is this. God is love. Love God, love your neighbour the way you love yourself. On these two great principles hang all of the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament. The deeper truth is God is love. And subsets of love are grace. 
when I know I'm loved, I can act graciously towards others, towards you. When I'm fighting inside and tortured myself and riddled with the cancer of fear or hatred, I'll find it very difficult to be open-handed with you. Love God and love your neighbours yourself. On these two great principles, everything hangs. And if one subset of love is called grace, another subset of love is inclusion. Another subset of love is to reach out to the person who's not like me, who doesn't look like me, who isn't my colour, who doesn't speak my language, who doesn't vote for my political party, who you know, isn't in my camp, to reach out to them and to listen to them and to understand them. Of course, these things sound very simple, but they're very difficult. And for lack of them, we find our societies broken down and divided in a way that they are. Um, here's a great quote, I think. It's from M. Scott Peck. Have you heard of him? He wrote a book which is called The Road Less Traveled. Has anybody read it? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great book. Um, it's a classic. I think it's, you know, I think, I think I'm right in saying this, that aside from the Bible, it's sold more copies than any other book um, in the Western world, something like that a road less travelled and here's a great quote from his book The Road Less Travelled the truth is that our finest moments are most likely to occur when we're feeling deeply uncomfortable unhappy or unfulfilled it's only in such moments propelled by our discomfort that we are likely to step out of our ruts and to start searching for different ways or truer answers Fantastic quote, don't you think? Our darkest, deepest, most uncomfortable, unhappy, unfulfilled moments can be the moments that propel us into a different way of understanding. But they can also be the moments that cocoon us. Because don't you think, and you know, there's a chance to talk about this in a minute, don't you think there are some people who use difficult moments to propel them into grace? Perlman in that difficult moment, instead of giving up and you know, busting his, his violin on the floor or you know, keeping everyone waiting, he sits there, he thinks he's in the most difficult situation and he works out how he can still bring joy to those people using just three strings and not four. Joseph is in this appalling situation and yet he goes first. And he throws his arms around his brother and he weeps. He's the prime minister. He's in power. He may have, through the years, dreamt of the moment when these, his brothers would come and bow before him. You know, his previous dream as a young man. He, have you ever done that? I'm sure you have. You dream of getting your own back. I'm dreaming of a time when that person has to come and stand in front of me. And you practice the words that you're going to use that are going to cut them to pieces. Joseph had plenty of time, years, to do this. But in this moment, he steps off his stage, his platform, and he throws his arms round his brother and weeps. He goes first. The crowd in Jerusalem, they've not learnt a lesson. 
Their struggle hasn't purified them. Their struggle hasn't made them better people. Their struggle has filled them with a cancer of hate that's shredding their lives and leaving them truly uh, broken. Um, a, a few years ago, some years ago, uh, Bono, part of U2, as you know, um, wrote a song, and he wrote it when... Uh, is, it, that, that, um, is there anybody in this room old enough to have liked the band In Excess? Yeah? yeah? yeah. <laughs> Did you? <coughs> so Michael Hutchins, lead singer, he was In Excess, his front man, main man. Michael Hutchins, you may well, well, I'm sure you would know, you may all know, uh, he committed suicide. Um, he committed suicide. And he was Bono's friend. And Bono uh, talks about the fact that he knew that Michael struggled with life and depression. And he, but he knew that Michael struggled with things that had gone wrong for him. And Bono said that he, he, he hated the fact that he'd never, ever had an honest, deep conversation with his friend Michael and confronted him with things and said to him, I know that's gone wrong, I know that hasn't worked, but you've got to leave it behind. You can't get stuck in this moment. Leave it behind, set it down, use your pain to drive you to a better place instead of wallowing in it. He never did. And um, Michael Hutchins committed suicide. So I'd like to read to you uh, what uh, Bono uh, said. He wrote a song called Stuck in the Moment. Um, Stuck in the Moment, you can't get out of it. And um, he said of this, he characterised the song as a fight between friends, which he felt guilty, as I've said, for never having had with Michael Hutchins whilst he was alive. And this is a quote from Bono, which is why I read it. It's a row between mates, this song. I'm going to show you some of the words. You're kind of trying to wake them up out of an idea. In my case, it's a row I didn't have while he was alive. I feel the biggest respect that I could pay to Michael now is to not write some stupid sloppy song. So I wrote a really tough number, slapping him round the head. And I'm sorry, and I'm sorry, but that's how it came out of me. And the chorus of that um, great YouTube song simply says this. It's written to Michael Hutchins. You've got to get yourself together. You've got stuck in a moment and now you can't get out of it. Don't say that later will be better. Now you're stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. It's the chorus. If you listen to the verses, it's about saying to Michael Hutchins, you're here. You can change it. It doesn't have to be like this. The choice between the attitude of the crowd on Palm Sunday and the attitude of, um, of, of Joseph. Um, did, you, uh, did you see all the, um, the uh, pictures from the American cities yesterday of the kids? Um, you know, did you, uh, you know, in Washington, well, it was right across America and even here, you know, there was, um, there was, um, a gathering at the, um, uh, the American Assembly, uh, at American Embassy yesterday, wasn't on hundreds and hundreds of people um, protesting about gun crime or gun law or lack of gun law in the states. 
And uh, it, I don't know if you've seen the pictures from, uh, from Washington, but I, I have no idea. Does someone know how many people were, were there? Certainly more people than uh, were at Trump's inaugural speech. I mean, it's just like flooded with, I mean, it's, a, it's hundreds of thousands of people there. Um, I, I have no idea how many. Some of the pictures are extraordinary. And um, all of these young people saying, we have to choose a different way as a nation. We can't go this way. And it reminded me of these words, again, from Isaiah. In fact, I sent a little tweet with them this morning in a picture of all the kids, you know, well, some of the ki kids in Washington, just a sea of people um, that's got retweeted and retweeted. But these are words from Isaiah. And they shall beat their swords. In America's case, they're semi-automatic guns and they shall beat their guns into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What an extraordinary hope. What an extraordinary dream. What an extraordinary vision that we call to work for. And of course, this is right at the heart of the story of Palm Sunday. As the crowds lay the palm leaves and shout, Hosanna, save us, save us, save us, they saw Jesus as a military leader. And of course, days later, on Thursday night, Peter, Jesus' disciple, takes a sword to cut off the ear of one of the uh, helpers, of one of the priests. And Jesus says, put it away. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Fantastic words, but of course, what's true for a nation needs to be true for me, personally. Needs to be true for me, which is the bit I struggle with. I'm pretty good at thinking through what our foreign policy should be, I can uh, critique that quite nicely. It's harder to think through what my attitude should be in the office tomorrow, in the tricky situation I'm in, in the meeting that's difficult, with the phone call to the person that's really rather awkward and slow or whatever. This is what I'm called to. This is what I'm asked to do. This is how to win. We win, I see, we win in the end, say Jesus, though we never use these words, looking like we're losing. And we lose looking like we're winning. We always lose looking like we're winning, getting out our guns, putting them on display, setting up our kind of military show day, showing off our hardware, demonstrating that we're on the front foot, personally. We lose looking like we're winning, and we all lose. We win looking like we're losing. And so it is that Jesus dies on the cross, that he rises from the dead, and there is hope for everyone. 
What's the cross and resurrection of Jesus about? Which I see is one event, really. Not two events. It's event part one and event part two. I think the message is, from Jesus, you can trust me. You can take the blow and you don't have to return it. You don't have to be the top dog. You can take all their throw at you. It's okay. Trust me. Jesus rises from the dead and the world is changed. And we're called to the same thing. I wonder whether um, you'd like to take just a few minutes, get more tea, tea and coffee if you choose, and put on some music around your tables. What do you think of what I've said? Is it practical? Could it work? Does it work? Is it doable? Could it bring us a new kind of politics locally, nationally? Could it bring us a new kind of relationship, personally? What do you think? Let's spend a few moments talking about that. A few minutes talking about that. Um, that's um, a good discussion. We're going to do something uh, to finish off. But first of all, I'm going to um, impose something into our conversation that you might, fit, doesn't, uh, might think doesn't fit. But I hope in actual fact it does. Earlier I said that if God is love, love is the main category of life. And everything that fits with love fits, and everything that doesn't fit with love doesn't fit. So um, Oasis is committed to inclusion. We talked about grace this evening. How do we know that grace makes sense? Because it fits with the concept of a God who is love. How do we know that inclusion makes sense? Because it's another dimension, another outcome of love. How do we know that some uh, doctrines uh, don't work? Because they're outcomes that judge and crush. I always say that you can judge any theology, any doctrine, any dogma by whether you can shine the mirror of love at it and it still work and it still be cohesive. By love, of course, I don't mean to do anything you like. Love God, love your neighbour as yourself. Any behaviour that is abusive, any behaviour that uses another person, that exploits another person, is not of love. It's exploitation and dressed up as concerned. So we're driven in all that we do by this grace, or want to be driven. We've got a mind to go. And as part of that, this week we're going to uh, launch um, uh, one or two resources, in fact, three resources. And I just wanted to tell you about them because uh, when they get launched this week, um, uh, they're quite likely to get talked about a bit. And I didn't want you to suddenly find out, ooh, blow, they launched all those things and they, uh, they didn't talk to us. Because of this commitment to grace and inclusion, we're launching uh, this on Wednesday. It's called the Gender Agenda Towards a Biblical Theology on Gender Identity, Reassignment and Confirmation. And that's a, a kind of six, seven thousand word um, book, short book that I've written. And it's going to be published as an Amazon book. And we're going to publish that with Stonewall. So it's going to be a, an Oasis Stonewall um, project. 
uh, together. So that comes out on Wednesday. With it, we're going to publish this. Uh, it's called Transforming Churches, a practical guide for the inclusion of trans and gender non-conforming people in the church. And that's been written by a friend of ours, someone who doesn't work for Oasis, um, but she's, um, she's been a friend of ours for a long time and works in this uh, field. And uh, again, it's something that she's produced. Her name's Christine, Christine Rose. And uh, we work with the uh, Stonewall guys, etc., and so a team from Oasis to just check this and make sure this is really practical for churches. And with it, we're going to uh, release a video as well, which is a video that I've made, that Dan recorded, that's been, uh, I think Dan's edited it as well, put together. So this will all appear on Wednesday. We're going to press release it, etc. But it'll all appear on one of our websites, which is called openchurch.network. Openchurch.network uh, slash uh, gender conversation. And our goal is to create a conversation in the church around these issues. How do we treat people who are not, you know, the standard, who are, you know, who... So it's, it's just like the issue of race, isn't it? It's just like the issue of race for the church. For years and years, and still, sadly, today, there are churches where race is a huge issue. It's just like the issue of women in leadership. For years and years, and still sadly today, there are many churches where women are not able to lead because of their gender. This is another uh, gender issue, and uh, we're going to hopefully begin a deeper conversation around that uh, in the church. There's lots to say about that, and perhaps we could spend um, an evening looking at that uh, together and looking at some of the theology we put uh, together around that. But I simply wanted to tell you at this stage we've done that and that will be happening this week. And it's because of what we believe about things that I've just been saying. God of love calls us to include. A God of love calls us to grace. We're going to finish by um, listening to a song which Flick's going to uh, play. I mean, put, um, not sing and play. But we're going to listen to this song written by a guy who grew up in Croydon down, down the road where I grew up. Croydon, like here, has a huge gang problem. And uh, um, I, I, was saying to, I was saying earlier that on Friday, this road, Kennington Road, was shut for most of the day. Um, and, it, and, and indeed yesterday morning as well because someone was stabbed at the Tesco's uh, down at Kennington Cross. Um, as we know, knife crime is out of control in our city, absolutely out of control. And this guy grew up in a gang in Croydon but also as a kid went to church and um, he's become quite well known and his whole life is wrestling between the two things it's wrestling between his gang culture, the grime culture, uh, all of that, and the things that he learned as a kid um, at church. And um, his name is, is well known now, his name's Stormzy, and um, we are going to listen to a track that he wrote. It's called Blinded by Your Grace, and Flick is going to pray. 
play it now. And as she does, I wonder if you, each one of you, would just take a few moments, take this time to listen to these lyrics and ask yourself, how do you live this week for grace and for inclusion? taken that symbol and it's rewoven it into a cross which is a symbol a symbol of fragility power and fragility and our culture tells us that we're only ever going to get anywhere when we're big and powerful and stay in charge and the cross tells us that's a lie 
and the cross points us in a different direction this week in our conversations and our relationships this week. So I'm going to invite you, as um, uh, we just put that uh, track back on, I'm going to invite you, as you choose and if you choose, to come uh, to this table here and take one of these crosses. Take this. And as you take it, ask, what does this symbol mean for this me this week? The symbol of the palm of military power of crushing power is replaced with a symbol of fragility the symbol of fragility that's actually conquered the world through love and for the, through forgiveness Fliss going to put I think that track back on and as she does that I give you the opportunity to come and take one of these as a symbol of your commitment to this pathway if you choose before you do let me pray for you Father, we thank you for this symbol of the cross and of these palm crosses where something that was a symbol of power has been turned into a symbol of grace and a symbol of inclusion and a symbol of love. We thank you for this message that comes to us throughout the whole of scripture. Beat your swords into plowshares. We lay aside power and we choose to work this week for peace. Show us how we give ourselves to you to that end. Amen.